Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K. I'm Dr. Kaczynski. We're going to open the show today, as we always do, by stating that the goal of this show is to present you with a broad scope of value-based care issues, mainly involving the field of gastroenterology, but outside of GI as well. Our guest today is Dr. Franklin Galis, Executive Medical Director of Unio Health Partners and Chief Scientific Officer of Genesis PC. Franklin has practiced as a urologist in San Diego for over 30 years and co-founded Genesis Healthcare Partners in 2011, which has now become Unio Health Partners, a unique multi-specialty group composed of urologists and gastroenterologists. I've recently come to know Franklin through our sonar work in California and have been impressed with his passionate interest in quality, quality to improve clinical outcomes and cost-effective care. At Unio, he leads a team of data analysts focused on improving quality by leveraging technology, tracking physician performance, and developing methods to promote value-based care. He lectures both nationally and internationally on healthcare quality improvement, and he's published Genesis Outcomes data in leading medical journals, including the New England Journal of Medicine and the Journal of Urology. Dr. Galis holds a voluntary professor of urology position at UC San Diego and has consulted for major healthcare companies, including LabCorp. Welcome to the show, Franklin. Thank you, Larry. Pleasure wow. to be here today. My listeners all know that I typically start my interview by allowing the guests to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about themselves. I, I could go through your CV, but that's really not what we should do. I'd like you to go through how you became who you are Tell us about yourself, about your career. My foundation in medicine actually started with my late dad, Jaime Galis, an internationally acclaimed but humble vascular surgeon with whom I had the honor and pleasure of operating with from a young age of 17, when dad would call me from my military base when I was doing my compulsory national service in South Africa and ask me to assist him, which meant hours of holding big retractors during mm -hmm. a aneurysm surgery. I witnessed firsthand his impeccable and meticulous approach to detail in both surgical and clinical practice. My dad was a surgeon scientist who consistently looked for ways to improve surgical techniques and clinical outcomes. And subsequently, my personal interest in outcome science started with a patient and his wife. This is many years ago. We were discussing me possibly performing a radical prostatectomy which occurred very early in my clinical practice. I was just out of residency. And during my discussion of published outcomes for this procedure by experts in the field, the wife asked me, tell us, Dr. Galis, about your own results. To which mm -hmm. I responded, I haven't actually measured them, but I think they're good. And so the lady looked at me and said, well, thank you, Dr. Galis. We'll go to a surgeon who knows his own results. <laughs> and they promptly left my office. I felt stunned at the time, but this event actually prompted me to take seriously what had been said, and I began measuring my own personal outcomes and published them decades ago using my own non-validated questionnaires for my patients. There weren't any validated questionnaires. This was my, one of the first community publications on radical prostatectomy, and based on this experience, I was asked to assume the position of medical director of outcomes at our local hospital a position I held for about 12 years, during which I learned a lot about other specialties and performed outcome analysis on conditions like venous thromboembolism prophylaxis, 
which required a lot of assistance. We actually published those data in one of the quality journals in the U.S. It's something that needs to be done more. Physicians need to be quantifying their outcomes. We all think we do a good job. We're, we're all absolutely confident we do. But, you know, the measurement of it is really critical. It's really critical. You've been the longstanding medical director for Genesis Healthcare Partners in San Diego. So tell us first about Genesis and then tell us about your work on quality outcomes there. You know, in the early 2000s, groups were starting to integrate. Small groups like ours, one and two man practices became four, become eight, became 10. We thought there'd be economies of scale, give us more clout in the marketplace. As hospitals were creating foundation models and gobbling up physicians, um, and we were floating out there uh, on our own, you know, w- with these big organizations, and we were concerned about the future of private practice. So we, I was one of the co-founders, bringing together ten independent practices together, and we. We founded Genesis in 2011, so about 12 years ago. How big is Genesis today? The Genesis we started had about 25 urologists, and we it should be known we merged with our radiation oncology colleagues because there was synergy between the two groups, particularly in prostate cancer, as you know the the treatment options, what we call definitive curative therapies, either radical prostatectomy or radiation. So we started with our radiation colleagues initially, even before gastroenterology joined us. And subsequently, our MSO was acquired by private equity with the intent to grow the model. And um, so we brought on more urology groups in Los Angeles, some terrific folks there. We uh, brought on our, we had our gastroenterology colleagues in San Diego, and we, they recently acquired the Insight Group, whom you're familiar with the GI group. And so we're about about 110 to 120 physicians now, and about, I think, 60 plus minus advanced practice professionals. So we're almost, I think, almost 200 clinicians. Ah, so that, that's a major force. I, I would imagine there's there are very few urology groups that are larger than that in the country. Well, there's a group called Solaris that have acquired multiple urology groups, I think 11 or 12, and they, they've got several hundred urologists. So this is, uh, this is a phenomenon that's happening. Yeah. Where it goes, I don't know. I think there's a lot of potential to do good, but I think we have to be keep our eye on the ball and focus on value-based care. You know, the, the health plans, they merged the, fir- the, the earliest. And I remember back in the 80s and, and 90s, there were many, many, many insurance companies and they, they consolidated first. Then the hospital systems, as you you mentioned, were the next group to consolidate. Now the providers are consolidated. They're either jumping into employment situations with hospitals or they're forming large entities like yours and private equity funds have been available to help us. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. I'd like to focus on your quality outcomes. Tell us about your quality outcomes uh, at Genesis and now O'Neill. Thanks, Larry. My prior experience helped me design a quality improvement program at Genesis, which has been operational now for about 12 years. And we identified relevant areas of clinical practice, which we thought were in need of improvement, including 
conservative management of low-risk prostate cancer, which is in an indolent disease. And I think there are other similarities in other diseases where you don't need to be as aggressive managing these patients. And so we started with passive education, which generally does not work well. And then we implemented an intervention, which we call audited physician feedback. We gave our physicians their performance data. And that made a huge difference in improving the adoption of conservative management, which is either active surveillance, you're actively surveilling the patient, or watchful waiting. We published this implementation science experience and received a lot of positive feedback. And we've refined the intervention and now are transparent with physician performance in contrast to our initial practice of anonymizing physicians' performance. So before we just put our doctors A, B, C, D and send them their individual results and compare them to the group's averages, but today we put people's names down. We're fully transparent. More recently, we've partnered with the Prostate Cancer Active Surveillance Project, which is an academic community collaborative and we've all partnered with United Healthcare, the largest payer in the country. And this collaborative has really been quite successful, and it includes a pay-for-performance intervention, which is currently in its second year. It's been an eye-opening experience, Larry, in terms of what it takes to implement and measure the performance of our colleagues. And we're leveraging the electronic healthcare record to obtain structured data for reporting purposes in order to avoid manual chart review, which is cumbersome and costly. UHC, United Healthcare, have been tremendous partners in this process, and it's still a continuous learning experience, but we think it's a start. Well, that's a, that's a big start with a major health plan. That's a significant achievement. I, I want to ask you a couple of follow-up questions. Conservative management, from a patient's point of view, that word cancer is a, is a frightening word. If someone told me that I had prostate cancer, but we were going to be conservative and just do watchful waiting here, do you get pushback from the patients? How do the patients accept this, this approach? It's a challenge and it takes a lot of education and it's got to be a shared decision, you know, support um, intervention. You really have to explain to the patients what the, the low-risk disease, which is typically in your, your uh, audience may have heard of the Gleason score. The Gleason mm -hmm. category is a grading under the microscope pathologically. And grade group one, as it's now called, are indolent. These are slow-growing cancers that at age 50, probably almost 50% of men harbor this disease that they don't know about. And we typically say that by the age of 90 to 100, all men will have some degree of prostate cancer that they never knew about in their lifetime. So it's an indolent disease. The challenge is there's a lot of more aggressive disease, and we have to differentiate mm -hmm. low-risk indolent disease from aggressive disease. It's like an adenoma versus a carcinoma of the rectum. You know, you, the adenoma, you can resect and you watch it. Prostate cancer, low risk. We don't resect it. We just watch it. We do repeat biopsies, MRIs, genetic biomarkers to make sure. And the data shows there's a big study out of England comparing surgery, radiation, and observation. And at 15 years, the, 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 the outcomes were similar. Clearly, there was more metastatic disease in those that were watched. So I think you have to individualize and for patients who have less than a 10-year life expectancy or older men, this makes more sense. 
And there's yeah. even a push to call these indolent cancers not cancer. They haven't come up with a term, very controversial. So it's a sensitive topic which requires a lot of discussion by experts with their patients. You, you know, we've gone through the same thing in GI. The carcinoma in situ in a polyp would, would put fear into patients. And that's really not used anymore. And so it is, there's a lot of psychology here, but this ties in with where I want to go in, in my next question, because as soon as a patient thinks we're focused on cost and we're focused on value-based care, we have to be careful that they don't think we're lim limiting their care in order to save money. It's, it's a very, very delicate balance we have to, we have to maintain but I think your approach makes so much sense. You're able to give the patients the statistics, the, 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 the findings, the outcomes that drive your decision so that they, they won't perceive that you're, that you're putting them into a category just so that extra money is not spent. Yeah, absolutely. And the term active surveillance means we're going to watch you closely, sir. We're going to What's your PSA? We'll check your price date. We'll do a confirmatory biopsy within a period of time just to make sure we get it right. And we'll monitor you clinically. We'll do genetic testing if there's available genetics biomarkers. So it's not just sending the patient on their way. We're going to actively monitor them. And 20 to 30% will um, be reclassified, as we call it. We'll find higher grade disease. And then we'll offer them treatment. But uh, it's, it's, it's a very important, as you say, sensitive topic to have with patients and requires a lot of you know, expertise in guiding patients through this journey. But just it's similar to the audited physician feedback, data drives decisions and people can make decisions easier when they're presented with appropriate data. That, that's, that's critical. So let's pivot a little bit here. I want to talk about Unio. You sound like you were very, very successful at Genesis. You, you even brought in your radiation oncologists in. So why Unio? Why, why, why that next step? What, what, what drove that? I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about integration of insurance companies and, and the hospital systems. Why did they do that? I don't know what their premise is. I would imagine it's economies of scale, market share. I'm not a businessman. I mean, we have to become businessmen to some degree in order to survive. And we looked at economies of scale, better management, better EMR management, IT. I remember managing my own practice with my wife, who was a, a preschool director who came in and salvaged our practice because I just <laughs> didn't have good office managers and actually had the best years in my little private practice when Jean took over. But we'd come home every night and we'd talk about office problems and IT problems and insurance problems and billing problems. And I said to myself about 15 years ago, this is untenable. We've got to form a bigger group. And that's why we formed Genesis to, to get the professional management. And I think we're taking it to the next level with Unio where we've got professionals and capital to help us grow and compete in the marketplace. So why gastroenterology? Well, there are several synergies between urology and gastroenterology. And just remember the, 
the orifices that we work on are very close to each other, right? <laughs> yes, they are. Yes, they so, are. so we're in, in close proximity uh, physically and anatomically. And I actually think um, even culturally, just the chemistry between urologists and gastroenterologists, I think we, we sort of cut from the same cloth. And I, I think that's why you and I have developed this friendship and uh, you know, working relationship over the last year or so. I think we relate to each other well, but you know, from a practical standpoint, there are ancillary services which are helpful in this era of declining reimbursement. And, and let's be honest, you know, we the hospitals have their own path labs, their own imaging, the, the everything, all the ancillaries. And why shouldn't we, if we can provide high quality services, also uh, benefit from it? So, in and especially during this era of uh, declining reimbursement. We have to depend on other sources of revenue. So yeah. I think I think that's part of why there's a good synergy and alignment between urology and gastroenterology. Yeah, I, you know, it it makes some sense, the pathology. We have common needs for that. We do repetitive procedures where we can really uh, wind up having the, the, the pathologists that, that can be focused on our specific needs. But... We also have the use of medications. And I was impressed when I went to your recent summit meeting with what specialty networks might be bringing to uh, both urology and gastroenterology. Tell us about your relationship with specialty networks. What are they and, and uh, uh, how do they bring GI and urology together? So on a personal level, I was the medical director for the entity known as PPS Analytics several years ago. And PPS was acquired and is now integrated into specialty networks, which includes their EuroGPO. So it was the GPO and, and the data analytics company that came together essentially with another entity. But that was the foundation of specialty networks. Which, was, which has really been most helpful in guiding large groups, urology groups now, gastroenterology groups and rheumatology, I believe, and helps physicians and their organizations how best to navigate the challenges with purchasing of therapeutics, provides great assistance in other forms to practices like ours at UNIO. And PPS Analytics is a platform that abstracts our EHR data and provides relevant reports and feedback to the practices, promoting evidence-based practice. So we get data, we find out you know, patients who haven't had blood testing, who haven't been imaged, who, who are showing evidence of progressing and not on therapeutics. So we really need to leverage these data analytics systems, which can pull data out of the EHR. Yeah, it, it does seem that like it has synergy in, in both of our specialties. And I was uh, especially interested in their new strategy around uh, pharmacy, uh, practice pharmacies. So we'll, we'll see where that goes in the future. I'm going to break here for a second. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to The Scope with Dr. K. Our guest today is Dr. Franklin Galis, Executive Medical Director of Unio Health Partners and Chief Scientific Officer of Genesis PC. Franklin, I want to turn to value-based care. Both of us are very passionate about this. And so how do you see an organization like UNIO being able to move the needle in value-based care? Um, good question, Larry. I believe that value-based care models need deep involvement by those of us 
who have been in the trenches of clinical practice like you and I. People who understand what is evidence-based medicine and know how to implement it into routine clinical practice. And unfortunately, this is my personal opinion, the current payment models have been mostly top-down and have shown little success. Mm -hmm. Our son, Greg, who's a healthcare attorney in Atlanta, and I wrote a white paper on MACRA after the legislation was passed in 2015. And we're hopeful that the government's commitment to value-based care would be implemented promptly and fairly. However, that has not transpired, and they've actually been calls to disband MIPS. As I mentioned earlier, urologists are reporting on measures which simply have little to do with their clinical practice. And what I mean by that is, you know, we, we are doing active surveillance, conservative management for low-risk prostate cancer. But when you look at MIPS reporting for urologists, the majority, probably more than 98%, are reporting on cross-cutting measures like measuring blood pressure, smoking cessation, because they're easy to report on in, in order to meet the thresholds. So, you know, I think there's a big concern that I have, what is the relevance of what we're doing, what we're measuring to what we want to achieve, which is value-based care, better quality at lower cost or reasonable cost. Franklin, you are preaching to the choir here. You know, I, I sit on PTAC, the Physician Focused Payment Model Technical Advisory Committee, which was created in the 2016 MACRA legislation. And Sonar, Project Sonar, was the first PTAC-recommended physician-focused payment model back in 2017. But like all of the other 30-plus value-based program proposals that were approved by PTAC, none of them have been implemented by CMS or CMMI. So this is a major issue. And I agree with you. Physicians like you need to be more involved on a national level. Don't be surprised if you get if you get drafted, <laughs> and it might be me responsible. Anyway, uh, back to back to our, our our agenda here. So, you know, one of the things we've seen at PTAC is that risk is being pushed down from health plans down to the pay providers, entities that provide care that are also capable of, of taking risk. So ACOs from the top, from the bottom up, large primary care groups, how do you see UNIO integrating with these payvider groups? So it's a great question, Larry, but it's really a question for our management team. You know, my role is to integrate our quality improvement efforts and promote and reward evidence-based medical practice. But you know that healthcare in the United States is 20% of GDP, gross domestic product. It's almost $4 trillion a year, of which mm -hmm. it's considered that $1 trillion are waste. It's big business. My late dad, as I mentioned earlier, once turned around to me many years ago and he said, you know what, you're becoming a businessman. <laughs> he said, dad, to survive in medicine in this country, you have to have some knowledge of business and understand it. Well, that was running a small clinical practice, negotiating contracts, negotiating prices and whatever. But today, it's far more complex. And that's why we need sophisticated management. So um, I, I, that's why we've got an MSO and we've got uh, CEOs and CFOs and COOs who will, I think, 
define how we're going to proceed with ACOs and large groups. I, I, I don't know how that's going to transpire, but we need to focus on the, the vision and the goal of providing best quality of care at reasonable cost. And that's what, what people like myself should be doing. I, I totally agree. That's stay in your lane, stay in the, the space that you can make the most impact. If you had to rub your crystal ball and create your ideal model for value-based care for UNIO, what would it look like? What do you, what do you need to, to realize that dream? You know, it's, it's quite simple, Larry. I really believe that compensating and incentivizing physicians for optimal care is the way to go. We do this in every aspect of our daily lives. We look at value, whether you buy a motor car, you go to a restaurant, you know what you prepare to pay for, you, you expect certain quality, and that's what value is. Essentially, MIPS, if you look at what the government are doing currently with their thresholds, if you meet them, there are bonuses. The government's paying you more if you do better, and for those who don't meet these thresholds, they're financial penalties. So I think we need a system that truly supports optimal quality of care, and, and there's got to be accountability. Based on our experience, I believe that an integrated, top-down, bottom-up approach to healthcare is necessary, and that individual specialty societies should develop best practices based on the guidelines and establish relevant measures to reflect on quality of care being provided. As I mentioned, our UNIA approach um, has done this with conservative management. We've got other um, quality interventions. We make sure that there's our patient identification. We've seen mistakes made. And these are simple checks. So we actually, every time a, a physician in our group does a biopsy, we expect them to do a timeout. We measure it. And, and I'll just one last comment. When you look at our conservative management of low-risk prostate cancer, I've alluded to quite significantly during this discussion, we're at 83%. That means 83% of men with low-risk disease who come to UNIO will be managed conservatively. That doesn't mean they're not going to get treated in the future. Many will, but they're going to be starting off with conservative management. And if you compare that to the national averages of about 55%, so in my humble opinion, as you even said, the data speaks for itself. You have to have credible data, high fidelity, and relevant data, and that's my mission. When a surgical group that makes most of its revenue from doing surgery on a patient has an 83% conservative approach. That's, that speaks volumes for the quality of the doctors and the ethics they have uh, in how they're practicing medicine. That, that's, that's, that's quite the, quite the number to remember at the end of this. Frankly, thank you very much for taking the time with us today. Well, thanks for the invitation, and it's been a pleasure to chat with you. You can access our podcasts on most all of the podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and others. Learn more about the show on the program's page on healthcarenowradio.com. Lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at HCNowRadio. I guess I should change that to X, not Twitter. Be sure to follow us. On X at SonarMD, we're bringing patients, providers, and payers together to reimagine care. Until next time, I'm Dr. Tay. Stay well.